Welcome to another edition of the Albany Law School podcast. I'm Ben Myers, Assistant Director of Communications and Marketing here at Albany Law School. We're breaking our summer hiatus to bring you one of the offerings from our online graduate programs, Inclusive HR Practices and DEI, how to make measurable progress from where you are to where you want to be. In this very topical subject, we're going to be hearing from Beth Kranzberger of ATJ Consulting and Dr. Michelle Bowden-White from right here at Albany Law School about how to move from the aspirational commitments to best practices. And when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, success or failure is really in the details. Before we get to it, though, make sure to check out albanylaw.edu slash coronavirus. Just make sure you're up to date on everything happening here at the law school. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram if you need to get updates day to day. And if you like this episode of the podcast, you want to hear more, subscribe on any of the major podcast services or check out our SoundCloud account. Enough from me. Let's hand it over to the online graduate members. Hello and uh, good afternoon or good morning, where, wherever you happen to be. Uh, welcome to this HR in practice webinar from uh, the uh, online graduate programs team here at uh, Albany Law School. Uh, this webinar is about inclusive HR practices and DEI, how to make measurable progress from where you are to where you want to be. Next slide, please. So before we start, though, just a few items of, uh, of housekeeping. Um, closed captioning is enabled. Uh, if you look down there, uh, you can turn on the live transcript. You can also change the, uh, the size of the font if, uh, if you wish. Um, I, we would uh, like to let you know that uh, a recording of this is also being made and it will be made available to you uh, afterwards. Uh, we will send it out via email. Uh, we'll also put it on social media too. Uh, now, uh, we do encourage you to ask questions and also down here, you'll see a, a Q&A section. So uh, if you have any questions uh, for the uh, panelists, uh, please post them up there. And uh, as we progress through and indeed towards the end, uh, both Michelle and Beth will be pleased to uh, answer them. Uh, you will also see during the um, webinar uh, that we will be um, posting a link to a survey so that we can keep offering webinars of this type, the interesting topics and the engaging speakers that we bring. We would love to have your feedback so that we can keep making sure that the webinars that we offer are things that you're interested in. Next slide, please. Uh, now, this webinar is offered in conjunction with the Capital Region HR Association. Um, they are recognized by SHRM to offer PDCs, professional development credits, and uh, also credits for, for SHRM and uh, at the HR Certification Institute as well. Now, certificates for that will be made uh, available. Uh, I don't think we've got them ready straight away afterwards, but uh, within a few days, we will have them for you. Uh, if you do not receive them for us, uh, from us, please uh, send us an email. Uh, graduate programs at uh, albanylaw.edu and we will be happy to provide them for you. Next slide, please. 
And just a reminder, uh, if you're interested in finding out more about the Capital Region HR Association, it's a network of professionals. They have an annual conference that was a, a few weeks ago. They also have a, a weekly newsletter talking about best practice and other interesting things about the HR uh, in, industry. Um, it, it is worth reaching out to them if you're in the Capital Region, of course. Uh, info at crhra.org. That's info at crhra.org. Next slide, please. Now, at Albany Law School, as an online graduate program, uh, we do have a, a graduate program in HR. It's uh, called Human Resources, Law, Leadership and Policy. We launched it just recently in spring 2021, and it's offered both as a certificate, uh, a master's, uh, and, an, and an LLM. You can complete it, particularly the latter, in as little as, as 12 months. Most importantly, it is industry focused and it is Shermaline Society of Human Resources Management. Uh, it's a flexible program meant to meet your career needs. It is 100% online and, uh, and asynchronous. So it is, it is both designed, the, the course content, the material, uh, designed and taught by HR industry professionals. Uh, now, uh, if you want to learn more about that, please call us uh, on 518 443 5260. My colleague Nicole uh, will be posting that information periodically. Uh, and also, uh, you can give us an email on graduateadmissions at albanylaw.edu. That's graduateadmissions at albanylaw.edu. Next slide, please. Now, remember, there is no application fee. So if you are interested in uh, applying for one of our programs, and we would in encourage you as we move towards the, the fall term, the, the application deadline is the 16th. Again, give us a call on 518-443-5260 or email us on graduateadmissions at albanylaw.edu uh, and we will give you a, a, a voucher so that uh, you can waive the, uh, the application fee. Uh, next slide, please. We do have some upcoming events. Our next event in terms of the uh, HR in practice series will be a very interesting one. Um, uh, this will be Wednesday, July the 14th. Uh, again, same time, at one o'clock to two o'clock Eastern. Uh, Disney and HR operationalizing human resource strategy to maximize business uh, results. Uh, we will have uh, a couple of uh, experts uh, one of them has had many years of experience working uh, in terms of customer relations and HR in Disney. So if you want to understand how Disney approaches the whole aspect of HR, that one will not be uh, one to miss. Next slide, please. Uh, and also in August, Wednesday, August the 18th, again, one till two Eastern, uh, uh, we will having a, a, a chief human resources officer forum, looking at HR strategy, the challenges and the trends in a post-pandemic world. We've assembled a group of uh, CHROs to look at uh, a very sort of practitioner perspective on, you know, the role of the CHRO, but also um, their role in terms of developing strategy and uh, how they address some of the challenges and trends as we see um, the workforce transitioning from uh, its very remote focus during the pandemic back to being in person. Next slide, please. So uh, let me start to introduce the, uh, the, the two panelists who will be speaking as part of this uh, fireside chat. I'm very pleased to uh, welcome Beth uh, Kranzberger of ATJ Consulting. Now, Beth is a principal of uh, ATJ Consulting. She's a lawyer by training 
uh, and a long-time legal educator and uh, IDEA and DEI consultant with more than 25 years of experience working to abate implicit bias in the educational pipeline to the workforce and in the professions. Uh, she's worked with NGOs, private sector employers, law schools, educational institutions, professional organisations and governmental offices. She assists institutions and workplaces to craft sustainable systemic strategies to address bias and achieve excellence. Welcome to you, Beth. And uh, next slide, please. And I'm also delighted to welcome Dr. Michelle Bowden-White. And uh, Michelle, she's a rising third year student here at Albany Law School. Uh, and prior to entering law school, she enjoyed a successful and rewarding career in education, including work with uh, diverse student populations uh, as a teacher and principal, teaching undergraduate courses at a major college in NYC, uh, and writing several children's books, and earning a doctorate in educational leadership. Uh, now, uh, Michelle is the incoming 2021 to 2022 Director of Legal Education uh, for the American Bar Association Law Student Division. And at Albany Law School, she's served on the Moot Court Board, Student and Institutional Diversity Committees, uh, and uh, the BLSA eBoard. She's also interned with her school's uh, Family Violence Litigation Clinic, the law firm of Whiteman, Osterman and Hannah, uh, and the Chief Diversity Officer of the City of Albany. She's currently an intern at the Natural Resources Defence Council. Beth and uh, Dr. Michelle Bowden-White, you're both welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Will, and thank, thank you for inviting us, and I'm delighted to be a part of this uh, fireside chat. We were joking a bit earlier, the weather here in New York is very warm, so I don't know whether a fireside chat is exactly where we want to be, but certainly having this rich conversation is, is worthwhile and worth the time. Um, I want to just set the tone a little bit for kind of how we're going to be discussing this this afternoon and um, talk about diversity and inclusion and equity kind of in general. And, and the way that I think of them is that diversity is really focused on kind of what makes us unique and what those uh, characteristics about people are that, that really make them individual because ultimately we're all very diverse, right? We have different differences in age, differences in first language, differences in experiences, differences in race, differences in all kinds of things that make each of us a diverse individual. And um, I think in HR and in the work, it is recognizing and embracing those differences that those don't make anyone greater or less, they're just a little bit different. And so that I think is a perspective that is, um, is helpful to have. And um, equity really talks about kind of some fairness in our opportunities and, and how we go about things and approach them. And I think, the way that I got into this at Albany Law School is that the school really is concerned about ensuring that there is a diverse group of students, that we have a, a diverse set of lawyers ultimately to serve population and to help people in their problems and legal issues. And so to accomplish that, we have to look at how does the school operate? What uh, is done to make people feel welcome and included? What kinds of support is there to ensure that all students are going to be successful, not just in, in class, but ultimately on the bar exam? And that really is uh, requires a big focus on diversity and inclusion so that we can make sure that everyone is able to reach their full potential. Um, so that's really kind of the, the, where we start with this discussion and this conversation. And I'll um, stop talking and turn it over to Beth. 
Thank you, uh, Dr. Bowden-White and to Will and for all of you uh, being with us today. Uh, you know, I think we are having a moment. Um, we hear lots of sort of that phrase followed by some very interesting statements. Um, I try to think of it in this way. We're having a moment where more of the US population is increasingly aware of how systemically unequal and inequitable most sectors of US society are and that they are closed to provide limited access to full participation for large segments of our society. Um, and I call, I am a, a inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility consult, uh, practitioner which means I work on the nitty gritty because the devil and success are in the details. And I work on operationalizing our aspirational commitments. If most, if you poll most professionals and HR professionals and adults in the workforce and say, is, is, is diversity and inclusion a good thing? The vast majority of people will say yes, either because it's the socially acceptable answer or because they believe it in their hearts. But really measurable success comes when you have figured out how to bridge the gap between that, those aspirational commitments and measurable outcomes. And in order to do that, sustained intense, uh, intentionality is required. And it, is in, it must be sustained and kept in the mind and on the agenda of everyone who has a piece or a role to play in the HR process from you all and your staffs um, to those who will participate on hiring committees, um, to those who will do outreach and recruitment, to those who will make the offer, to those who will, are doing the recruiting of folks you've made an offer to, and then ultimately, how do, you, how do you retain support and help people to thrive so they are able to bring the fullness of their innovation, their expertise, their resources, their creativity, and their full skill sets. Um, uh, so, and really, as I said, it is really about building and crafting and overhauling systems and policies and procedures, which is sort of the less um, aspirational stuff, but it is the mission critical stuff in order to really achieve a more inclusive, excellent, thriving workforce that ultimately allows you to meet your um, goals, whether that's in the private sector, the governmental sector, in the NGO sector, education, et cetera. So, you know, sort of that's, that's the, the, the mindset that I come to it with as I bring my toolbox to begin to revise, fix, overhaul, and help entities go from their, their mission and vision for their workplaces to how and where they are to where they want to be and how to stay and continue to build on successes and measurable progress. So we have just a little bit to talk about, Dr. Bowden-White. I think, I think we do. I think we do. And I want to pick up on a phrase that you use of sustained intentionality. But before I, I talk a little bit about that, we actually have some polls questions that we want to ask you as the participants. So we have a better sense of the the people that we're talking to, right? Because we don't want to make any uh, presumptions about the group. So I hope you'll take just a couple of seconds and answer those poll questions for us. Um, 
And while you're doing that, uh, the idea of sustained intentionality really resonates because you have to be clear about what it is that you are, what, what does diversity inclusion, what practices, what procedures are you talking about? What is it that you want to adjust? And then really sustaining that effort. So something may not work the way you think it will the first time. That doesn't mean that you should just say, oh, forget it, never mind. this is too hard, we're not going to do it. It's worth the sustained effort because if the goal is to really have everyone feel included, is to really create a diverse workforce, then that's gonna be a longer term effort. It's not just kind of a one shot deal and a one shot thing to do. That said, the, the actions that, that can be taken don't have to be large to have a big impact. So for example, here at the school, you know, this is, this is law school for people who've been involved in law school, you know, one of the, or if you, even if you haven't, and you've seen te television and movies, you know that one part of those law school classes is the terrifying Socratic method where, you know, the professor just hones in on somebody and starts asking a lot of questions about a case. And while that may be uncomfortable, it's also important because it helps the person who's being asked to think through the case that's being studied and the, and the legal principles that are being studied. Well, when someone has a name that the professor may find difficult to pronounce or to say, then one thing that can happen is that they don't call on that student. And so in an effort to be, um, to be considerate of the student and not mispronounce their name, there's the impact of excluding the student because they don't get the opportunity to think through the cases because they don't get called upon. So a simple step to take is, and this is something that the school is undertaking, is to, um, on the rosters that the professors receive, write out the phonetic spelling of everyone's name. And a further step is to ask students to just record their names so that a professor can hit the button and hear the student pronounce the name themselves. And it's a small thing and it may seem a little bit silly, but what it does is make an effort towards inclusion because now everyone can be a part of the class. Everyone can be you know, a participant, a full participant and have their viewpoints heard and have their opinions shared. And it makes a difference in terms of learning. So that sustained intentionality to be inclusive comes out in large efforts, but also in small moments and small movements that can really make a difference for people. And I, I think, how are we doing on the poll? Okay. Thank you for your participation. It looks like about 43% of you are HR professionals in a small to mid-sized organization. Uh, thank you for self-identifying what you feel like your expertise level of expertise is. Are we able to share, are, are the participants seeing these results as well? Yes. Hopefully you are. Uh, and I really appreciate folks um, being candid about where they are, because this allows us um, to speak and, and, and pinpoint our, target our remarks in more effective ways once we know where people are. Uh, does your organization, okay. Super, super, super helpful. And about 20% of you have a chief diversity officer. So I think Michelle, this is 
what an extraordinary group that you were so quick and so candid to share exactly where you are. Absolutely. I want to pick up on 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 Michelle's comments. Um, as we as we are thinking about these issues, um, we are thinking both about what our theoretical and aspirational commitments are, as I've said, but also sort of beginning to develop an understanding that we have multiple systems within the US, within every sector of society, and certainly within the workplace um, that operate to either exclude folks uh, who are women, people of color, LGBTQ folks, those with visible and invisible physical or emotional um, uh, disabilities, and systems that operate to minimize participation. And I, 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 I wanna sort of ground our conversation sort of in that as the why for why we're doing this. And, and I wanna suggest to you that a great way to start uh, your sort of concrete practitioner work, your journeyman work, is to do a situational analysis of where you are. Um, it helps to provide context and target really where you are, how far you have to go, what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, and what are the opportunities for advancement. And I think, um, Dr. Bowden-White, as I have experienced, if that's, we can do that situational analysis within the geographic region that you're in, with your, within your city or your county or your metro area, and then similarly do it within your workplace, um, looking at sort of counts. How gender balanced are we? How are we doing in terms of participation of people of color? And that should be disaggregated by racial and ethnic group. And by disaggregated, I mean, you, you do, it does not help you necessarily to, to lump all categories of people of color together because there are different histories of disadvantage and oppression and how we untangle those and create pathways into the workplace are often specific to those histories. And then also in terms of your LGBTQ representation, and also folks who, else, who will self-identify to you as having either visible or invisible disabilities or, cha or challenges. Um, and I think what, as you are doing that situational analysis, you're thinking about how do we gather this data? How do people know that we wanna know who is with us so that we can advance? And I wanna, I wanna reassure all of you that by the very act of beginning this process and sharing that this is the process that you're engaging in, a number of your colleagues in the workforce are going to go, oh, thank God, inside in their heads, oh, thank goodness, we're beginning to work on this, or we're going to work on this in a more intentional way. So I want to reassure you that there will be a portion of your colleagues that are cheering you on. Um, but again, the initial step is doing that situational analysis and getting your baseline in your data. And then as you're looking at your data, the data is gonna tell you a story. You're looking for patterns, you're looking for gaps, you're looking for demography gaps between your local, um, 
the demography of your local population or your workforce or whatever is your comparator group um, and what is found within your workforce. You're looking also for what your strengths are. Where are the, the real bright lights and the, and the real strengths that you can see in terms of where you've been successful, in terms of diversity, inclusion, and equity? And ident once you, ident you can only fix and advance what you know is there. So you are literally walking in and saying, hmm, that's not great, need to be better. But an opportunity to identify that's not great, we need to be better is the first step to moving forward. Michelle, any thoughts from you about sort of doing that analysis and that and that sort of that come that that really being honest with ourselves about where our where we are as a workforce or as a company? I think that's critical, Beth, because if we don't know where we're starting, then how do we know, you know, to the to the point of this that we've moved any? How do we know that there's any success or movement or even where we need to work? So that baseline information is critical and being able to, um, to discern that really is an enormous thing. And I just would like to, to add that the process of it then has to be one where people are comfortable, as comfortable as you can make them in disclosing this information. Um, people may have had bad experiences. They may, they may not feel necessarily that they want to share certain things or they may be concerned about possible repercussions or they may have other kinds of questions about why this information is important. And I think in the framing of the process, it's important to make it clear for everyone why this is being undertaken, what the goal is, which is really to help with increasing senses of inclusion and, and really supporting diversity. So as people see this as a benefit and people see this as a, as a positive movement for the company, then you get better responses, more accurate information to be able to know where you're starting and where, you know, to Beth's point, one of the points she made, where are your pockets of success? Where, where do people really feel good and feel comfortable? And these are people who, you know, are going to be with the company for, or the, or the organization They've been there for a bit of time or they intend to stay because they feel good and they feel included and they feel positive about their work. You wanna know where things are going well so that you can build on what kinds of practices are happening already. And it doesn't become something new and an add-on but an enhancement of what's already happening in your organization. And I, and I think Michelle um, touched on a really important point which is your why. Um, I think you have to be clear why you're doing this. And um, I think the, the great thing about being in 2021 is that we have this extraordinary weight of empirical research that talks about the economic benefits of successful diversity and inclusion in the workplace, um, the economic benefit to your customers, your client group, your shareholders, um, the advantage in terms of creativity, innovation, and performance, really, we use the word excellence of teams when different perspectives, different skill sets, expertises are coming to the fore to work on a problem. There's so much to say 
Um, but I think a good analogy is if you were seeking to build a house, would you want, would it be most effective to use eight hammers or would it be most effective to use a hammer and a planer and a screwdriver and a pneumatic nailing gun and a level and a cement mixer? It's a very basic notion, um, but I think that sort of looking at the why is important and really aligning and connecting your business mission or your entity's focus and vision as an entity with what does your data look like and what are your policies and procedures and having an alignment from the mission and vision through then into your data, through then your, through your pet policies and practices so then your measurables in terms of performance, sales figures, retention, leadership development, and success and visibility all begin to elevate and develop. The other analogy I want to use, and I think that this speaks to one of the questions in the chat, and I, and I know that Michelle has heard this one. Um, as an analogy, think of it this way. Diversity is being invited to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. Equity and full participation are being able to choose the playlist and full participation is about being able to plan the dance. So that when we speak to walking the talk with respect to inclusion and belonging, if you thought about the experience of being excluded and when somebody invited you in, you didn't just wanna be a wallflower or a fly on the wall. You wanted to feel as though you were sought after for your input, whether, and that folks understood all that you were bringing to the table and understood that you were an important addition to the three other people that were already there and thus, the outcome and the deliverable that you're creating, whether it's a new project or an innovative process or whatever that may be, is a, is a product then of all five of you and not four of you with me sitting on the sideline. I think that's sort of the most effective um, basic analogy that I use with folks who may just sort of be at initial level of understanding of you know, I'm open and good hearted, but I don't really understand the why or where we're going and what we need to do to get there. Thank you, Beth. I mean, I, your analogy makes so much sense to me because you don't just want to be on the sideline as a wildflower, you do want to participate. And I think that that's uh, a critical piece of this whole discussion, right? When, when people are apart when people are included, what really does that mean? And the, there's a second question in the chat around um, white cultures as well as cultures of color. And all cultures, uh, white cultures, cultures of color, people who have an, a different first language, people who have different abilities, people who have whatever kind of background should all be included, discussed, respected, and understood within the workplace because all bring a perspective to the work 
that can really enhance the work. And Beth already spoke about the economic benefits and other kinds of benefits when diversity and inclusion become a large focus of what a company or an organization is doing. Um, so I think that we have to not think of diversity and inclusion as being kind of, again, separate to certain cultures or certain people, but really encompassing everyone. And it's a focus on that larger view and that larger perspective that enhances everything. Because otherwise what we're doing is maybe in a nicer way, but we're still creating an other. Those other people are the ones we have to pay attention to with diversity initiatives. Those other people are the ones we have to think about when we're looking at inclusion. It's not an other, it's everyone, it's all. And it's really a cultural shift within an organization to think of diversity and inclusion as part and parcel of the organization as a whole and its mission as a whole, not as a side piece or an add-on that you think about later. So it's important to, um, to keep that perspective of this as being a whole. And you know, as we went through the poll, we looked at the poll, you know, and we see that a lot of people here are, are working very hard in, in uh, HR and your organizations. I just wanted to say as well that it's important to, um, to really talk with the leadership of the organization so that they too can understand why this is an important issue so that you have that kind of leadership support for your efforts because without the leadership support, it's gonna be very hard, if not impossible, to really move the needle in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So it's important for the leadership as well to be on board with these efforts and thinking through how this is a benefit to your organization as a whole and having those kinds of discussions with the leadership, I think is, is really important as well to make sure that the whole organization is moving in the, in the same direction. Michelle, you just, I, you put it so beautifully. And I think if you're doing diversity, equity and inclusion and accessibility well, you have diversity, equity and inclusion through multiple dimensions of your workforce. Um, all those that you listed. And I, I want to thank our anonymous um, attendee for the question. And I think it's important for folks like me, the white allies and the members of white work, the white members of workforces to think in this way. White culture has been the dominant culture in almost every workforce in most geographic regions up till now. Um, and what we're needing to do is create space and bring in additional culture and additional perspectives and additional backgrounds. So it is not a zero sum, it's a plus and and. Um, I also wanted to um, say two things in response to one of the questions. Um, one of the questions is the distinction between equity and equality. And I think if you Google the following uh, phrase, equity, inclusion, uh, justice, kids in the outfield, you will come up with a beautiful graphic that displays um, little kids of different heights trying to look over an outfield wall. And it, equity or equality means that every kid is standing on the ground. Well, only the tall kid in, in, an, in a perfectly equitable situation can see over the outfield. Equity is putting every kid on couple boxes so that they can see over the outfield. Now, it's an analogy that's problematic because you got kids in the outfield and they should be in the box seats behind home plate, but let that go. Um, and then justice 
is really tearing down the fence so anybody can see through, putting up a chain link fence to keep the balls in the outfield so that everybody, no matter their height, can see through. So again, these are toolbox tools to put in your toolbox and in your hip pocket as people are sort of trying, working hard to understand. I think I, I also, Michelle, I want to pick up something that you said as we get to sort of more actionable strategies. Um, when we think about next steps and practical approaches, I think of it as a five-step process. You're looking, number one, at what you just described as a commitment by leadership. This work is very hard to do if your leadership is not on board. And sometimes equity and inclusion and diversity issue uh, pursuits begin in HR, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes HR professionals are extraordinarily skilled DEI and IDEA practitioners. Others are emerging in their, in their skill set. And I use the phrase skill set because if you have not grown up, lived in, gone to school in, worked in, or had a multi or biracial family, you have a skill deficit. You have not had the opportunity to develop skills that you develop when you are in highly inclusive atmospheres. And that means that we're having to do professional development and skills training like we would for any other skill set. So getting back to the five steps, when you have a commitment to leadership, it is a commitment to sustainability and focus that is easy to lose. And without a sustained intentionality, bias and, and, and exclusionary practices that are invisible will control. And that's just the deal. Enough of you have to keep it in your, in your, in your frontal lobes, and in your intention, on your intentional agenda to be managed as you would any other, think of it as managing a compliance issue. It's never something that goes away and you're constantly tweaking, advancing and looking for where have we not operationalized these best practices. The second step we've already talked about, which is assessing where you are, gathering your data, interrogating your data, analyzing what's good, what's not so much, what do we have to build on? This third step is really is, is what we call growing representational diversity. The numbers, are we fairly uh, balanced in terms of full and broad participation of different protected classes, different groups, young, old. Old folks have a very, and I can say old folks because I am, uh, Old folks have a very hard row to hoe in our capitalist system. Folks of higher salaries tend to be laid off and, and cut out the, the soonest. And older women have a very hard time latching back on once they are over the age of 50. So you're growing that representational diversity. That means you're really retooling your HR policies, procedures, and practices at every granular level and you are managing them for the first time for some of you in a way that you haven't before, and you're gonna to continue to practice and innovate. It's gonna be an iterative feedback loop. Did we do it well? Did that work? Not so much. Let's figure out where did we not manage as carefully as we should have. The fourth step is integrating IDEA, DEI practices into your policies and your procedures, into every fiber of the business so that 
you're up. Oh, we're not going to have a meeting unless we have a gender balanced room and we have a, a racially diverse room and we have uh, an age diverse room as diverse as you can possibly make it so that we're not engaging in happy talk and having one perspective control. We don't, for example, move to the interview stage unless we've generated a highly diverse applicant pool. There are many institutions that will not move to that process because the leader has said, don't start this process unless you bring me a diverse pool in which to choose from. The steps like, I wanna see um, a second interview pool that is as diverse. Because if it's not, and this is, and I say this in a broad brush, you typically then have, have an unconscious bias or implicit bias playing out in that process where our brains prefer sameness, sameness is salient, our brains prefer in-groups, people who look like us, we have all of the biases that we grew up with, and unless we're intentional about it and do some training of ourselves, our processes are going to be fraught with those unintentional biases. And then the last step, and then, and then, I'll, and then I, I'm going to stop, is institutionalizing best practices and sustainability measures. Um, I want to reassure you that once you move enough through this process, it begins to take on a momentum of its own. It's ingrained in everything that you do reflexively and automatically. And then it feels less awkward, like it's something that you're having to intentionally do. And it's not natural and it's not regular. So I think if you think in terms of that five-step arc within HR, that will serve you extraordinarily well as you're beginning to think about a strategic plan in your own workforce for, for advancing into success in this way. Michelle, I know you have a great deal of experience in many different practices settings, including labor. What did I miss or what did I not put enough nuance on? I don't think you missed anything, Beth. As you were speaking, I was thinking of examples of some of these steps um, in actual practice. And so I wanna talk a little bit about the bias uh, piece that you mentioned and exclusionary practices. The, the, the difficulty with bias most of the time is that we don't recognize our own biases. You know, we, everyone has them, but we don't always recognize them because we think of however we see things as this is how it is. And so we don't realize that we are biased and how we may, may be biased and how we're doing something. So the example that, that always comes to my mind is um, orchestras. And orchestras had this overwhelming, you know, kind of white male makeup. And the people who selected musicians for orchestras did not, they, 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 if you ask them, they would say, well, those are the best musicians. And so a simple change was made where um, applicants would audition behind a curtain so you couldn't see the person and now you're just listening because really you want to hear how they play this is an orchestra it's not how they look it's how they sound and suddenly there was a much more diverse group of people who became members of orchestras more women more people of color because they were able to play they were always able to play but the bias in what does a an orchestral musician look like be was overwhelming the ability to really be able to see and to hear and to 
take this on. So I, I tell that story to say that, you know, we have to really be thoughtful. Um, as you mentioned, if the applicant pool is too small or too similar, then we have to really be thoughtful and intentional about why did that happen? And what is our impression of what makes a good employee in X or a good employee in Y? And really expand our viewpoint of that because you can miss a tremendous number of wonderful people because of a bias that you're not even aware of. So I, I just wanna say it's really important to try best to uncover those biases. And when you see you have a small applicant pool or you have another area when you're doing your, uh, your investigation into your company kind of base setting, when you see that, that's a signal that says that there's some bias there that needs to be exposed and looked at and maybe a practice that should be changed to address that so that it doesn't become um, continual institutional. It really does, you know, the, what always strikes me in DEI is the actual operational practices don't necessarily have to be big, huge changes, but they can have a big, huge impact. And so, you know, people sometimes are a little overwhelmed that this is too much work or it's too hard. I don't think that's true. I think that it is a different way of looking at things, a different way of thinking, but the actual practices that need to be changed may not be tremendous and they can have such an enormous impact on an organization. Michelle, I, I, it's a brilliant example. And, and I, I read recently that some orchestras had forgotten to have the auditioners walk in on carpet because many were hearing the click, click, click of women in heels, those who chose to wear heels. So they had to go that one step further. And as Harvey indicates, some orchestras, the screen is still being lifted for the final audition. So it, they are a work in progress, but they are far more inclusive than they used to be. Um, I, wanna, I wanna touch on also um, a, a point that, that Mohammed raised that you can see in the Q&A regarding KPIs. Um, we can look at KPIs in a sort of a more cynical way, but when you look at KPIs from, a, from an IDEA or DEI perspective, K, they are actually an opportunity for advancement. And the reason is this, KPIs are about accountability. And if you're serious as an entity about advancing equity and inclusion and representational diversity, you should have KPIs related to those topics. Um, there, for example, Shell, Royal Dutch Shell Corporation in their KPIs evaluate their managers in terms of how comfortable and how regularly they engage with and the quality of their engagement with employee affinity groups. They measure um, how effectively have they been inclusive of their group, how high performing and, 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 and equitably performing are their inclusive groups. So I think it's important um, that notion of accountability who has a vested interest in this and who's gonna hold us all honest, also circle back, circles back to an important point that Michelle first made, which is about leadership and how committed the leadership is. Um, I think when you have the KPIs, they begin to trigger accountability. And then you have to add in 
those sort of more nuanced um, set of practices that lead to intentionality with respect to climate, culture, and belonging. Um, and those begin also to load for addressing the more informal hidden systems within workplaces. Um, is much of the important work conducted over cocktails at a local tap room? Is it done on the golf course? Is it done while in California, a lot of the heavy transactional business is conducted on um, tens of thousands of dollars in, oh, on road bikes. Um, and that those practices have historically excluded women and people of color. Um, and and it, is, it is when those more informal um, systems control and have businesses transacted in that way that exclusion occurs. And the research has told us, um, some people said, well, we should just invite everybody sailing or biking or, or out for cocktails or golfing. And what the research tells us is that outgroups don't necessarily want to partake in those existing in-group rituals, that those are not necessarily welcoming and or places where folks feel fruitful in an employment workplace kind of way. So that, you know, that's what loads for climate culture and belonging, access to the distribution of high quality work, access to having the shoulder tap which is um, what happens when leadership and future leaders are identified. Somebody comes up and says, you know, I think you got a future here. Um, or you've been really dynamic. You know, that sort of leadership development needs to be as part and parcel part of that sustainable planning, as does every other um, recruitment, outreach, onboarding, hiring process because that loads for retention and leadership development. If you haven't, and Michelle knows this extraordinarily well, if you haven't gotten your climate, culture, belonging and retention practices in order, HR is just gonna be filling a leaking bucket. Michelle, I know you have a lot to say about retention practices. Thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, retention, it is critical because without that, as you said, you're just going to be cycling through and cycling through and cycling through, and it's it's not helpful. And I think um, there have to be multiple ways for people to be able to demonstrate leadership qualities for for them to be able to be recognized. You know, I, as you were speaking, Beth, I was I was thinking um, my. Enduring orientation to law school, there was a whole discussion about, you know, uh, the golf course and and going with partners and meeting. And I'm thinking to myself, I've never played golf in my life. I don't think I've ever watched a full game of golf. I there's hard for me to think of anything I'm less interested in than golf. And is this really what I have to do to advance in my career and as a lawyer? So um, to your point, it's not necessarily not being um, exposed to certain things, it also is not necessarily thinking that this is what is important for someone who's in an outgroup, for example. So there have to be more than one way to demonstrate things and, and creating space and creating ways for people to be able to 
to express themselves in meetings and discussions. It's been very interesting. I'm doing an internship right now um, that is on Zoom. And a big part of the company culture is, you know, how do we do those, those kinds of events on screen as opposed to in person where they might've had a picnic or they might've had, you know, uh, whatever other kind of event where everyone gets together. Now everything is on screen. And in a way that's a little bit um, better because we're all under the same constraints. So it's the in-group, out-group and the, the pat on the shoulder thing and all of those things don't, can't really happen the same way. And it may be ultimately be more equitable. I don't think that it's, it's a nicer way to work, but that's just my opinion. Um, but it certainly may be more equitable for people in our groups to be able to make those kinds of connections because they have the same access as would anyone else. So, um, you know, some just something to think about and consider. So I think it really is, again, about that sustained intentionality and really thinking about how do we operationalize what it is that we want to achieve and want to accomplish. And we want to achieve and accomplish leadership development. We want to recognize um, what different people of diverse backgrounds bring to the organization. We want to have retention and, and strong retention. That's what we want to accomplish. Then we need to think through maybe differently what the culture is and what our cultural touchstones within our organization are that can be more inclusive of everyone. So I think we really have to think with that. And Michelle, as of course you, you triggered a couple a couple reminders. I think stay interviews are marvelous practices where you've identified somebody with promise who's who's really um, uh, engaged in real ways, and and that the stay interview to say, you know, I notice you're really doing a terrific job. I think you have real leadership potential. We'd like to really cultivate and continue to engage with you. I think are really effective for for folks from historically protected groups. I also think when you look at um, when you put together your interview questions and processes and, and you touched on performance reviews, all, all of it harkens back to what do you value and how do you quantify and describe success? And I think this is where as HR professionals, guiding your hiring committee um, to think about in a more broad way and in a less narrow way, historically, um, uh, bona fides and qualifications have hinged too often to, to qualifications that were closed and or had hindered access. You know, access to elite colleges and universities, access to professional organizations, um, GPAs, things like that. I think when you when you can you when you craft sort of um, qualifications and position descriptions, that's really the first opportunity to signal to a highly diverse um, applicant pool that you are really looking to create an inclusive atmosphere because you know the economic benefits of inclusion. And then you begin to think about: Is it language skills? Is it experience in broader customer bases than you've than you've historically been able to serve? Is it um, uh, experience in other industries that provide 
a much more versatile, broad skill set. Um, and similarly with performance reviews, how narrow or broad is your definition of what a successful performing employee looks like? And, and here we find too many instances where folks have um, attended to the hiring and onboarding processes, but folks walks right smack into a buzzsaw of an environment that's, that's very um, narrowly tailored, rigidly evaluated, and that tends to weed out and sort out. If you have a process that is weeding out people of color and you have too much attrition, that tells you that that evaluation process is not being successful. I mean, and I think that's a really sophisticated notion that I think all, all of us who work in HR and building equitable and diverse systems really continue to need to um, read and research and build our own skills about because the notion of, of narrow meritocracies is really, really vexing when you talk about evaluation and performance review. Um, I think many industries have gone to adding performative opportunities to interview processes, allow somebody to demonstrate the skills that they're bringing, both the soft and the hard, you know, and even definitions of soft and hard tend to be really deeply gendered. Um, so your, uh, your um, uh, questions, I think, are triggering. You're all sort of thinking in really thoughtful ways that, that we appreciate. I'm sensitive to the time and I'm, and I'm looking at our, our chats and our questions. Let's see, other questions that, I think we have time for a couple other questions. Let's see, I'm reading, I'm reading. I see one that I've, I'd really like to take a second to address. Please. I know that time is, is running Please. out. Um, and it has to do with something, actually picks up on something that you just said, Beth, which is the uh, best candidate, right? Anonymizing the applications and, and the best candidate question. I think anonymizing the applications is important when you're looking at things so that you can just kind of uh, get a different picture. But in some way, you do need to keep the names of people so that you will be able to kind of recontact them and get back. And I think the, the, the point about the best candidate really goes to what Beth was just, just saying about what does that mean? What is best? What are the qualities that you're looking for? What are the skills that are necessary for the job? So that you focus on that as opposed to, you know, what school the person went to or, or other kinds of factors. Because if you really focus on what it is that you want this person to be able to do and to demonstrate and look at that and let that be the guiding uh, uh, force of how you make your, uh, screen your resumes, how do you put together your interviews, ask everyone the same interview questions so that everyone has an opportunity to really be able to present their best, you know, their best case for why they should be employed there. Um, those kinds of things can really help to make a difference, but I think it really does come down to some internal work on what is it that best is and what does best look like. And the clearer that your organization is about that question, the more these other things will fall into place. And in an increasingly global world, Michelle, as you just referenced, 
Um, colleges and universities are understanding that in order to navigate global business, global trade, global information exchange, global scientific sharing, our graduates and our workforce needs to be comfortable in working in highly inclusive atmospheres. Otherwise, we fall behind as a society, as the US. Um, we also fall behind in our ability to access more inclusive customer bases. I, I think there's also um, a really great, great question. Uh, our attendees, as usual, are leading us to the promised land. The last uh, question refers to gender non-conforming and gender non-binary language. I think I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of a really um, data dense application that allows people to self-identify and that you can't gather your baseline data unless you're gathering it on the on the front end. And many people feel and are thrilled when you ask them. I think we all need to be. Um, updating ourselves about gender norms, gender non-binary young people. Our young people are far ahead of us in dealing with gender and how fluid gender is. So um, again, all these issues are deep and challenging and lifelong issues, and it's a, an honor and privilege uh, to be with you and get to talk about this. Michelle, last thoughts uh, this in your beautiful way. Oh, thank, this was a wonderful experience. I hope that that you took something from this conversation. It certainly was for me a very rich discussion and conversation. And I wanna thank the participants for great questions. And Beth, it was a delight to be able to get your perspective and talk about these issues. And I will say this for Albany Law School, I will be starting in the LLM program next year. So I'm very excited about that. I think the focus on diversity and the focus on inclusion and equity you know, I hope I'll be able to bring that to my law career, but I'm delighted to be a part of that here at the school. So thank you so much, everyone, for participating. And please feel free to follow up with us as questions arise as you're trying to do the good work. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take it away. Well, Dr. Bowden White. Beth Kranzberger, thank you both of you. Um, that was interesting. Uh, it was also very thought provoking. Uh, and also for the practitioners out there, I think they had some, some takeaways that they can actually apply in the workplace. So thank you very much for, for lending your time and your expertise. Um, thank you for coming to see us today, the, 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 the audience and for your questions. And please don't forget that on uh, July the 14th, our next HR in practice webinar will be Disney and HR operationalizing human resource strategy to maximize business results. Thanks for coming. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye.